Welcome to Taking Control of Your Financial Life podcast, providing the simple answers to the complex questions asked about your financial future. Let's get you the answers you need about retirement, investing, asset planning, and the current market. Here's your host, Julian Rubenstein. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Taking Control of Your Financial Life. My name is Julian Rubenstein, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also the president of American Asset Management, a registered investment advisor located in Boca Raton. I'm very excited about today's show as we are fortunate to have Erica Deutsch Rothbard, the principal of Deutsch Rothbard and Associates, as our guest today. So please join me in welcoming Erica. Hello, Erica. Hi, Julian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me. Um, I'm really excited about today's show as you have a vast knowledge of the law in many different areas, as we spoke about earlier. So why don't you begin by telling listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a 28-year practicing attorney. I previously specialized in family and employment law, but in recent years have only uh, taken cases relating to employment law for my sanity. But uh, yeah, so I've, I've been doing all areas, both with plaintiff as well as defendants, representing employees and employers. Now, when did you originally get into law? Oh, God, 1993, when I graduated from uh, law school. Got it. Now, this the firm you're at now, when did you start it? 2002, uh, following my divorce. I was actually uh, in my own practice from about uh, 95 till 2002 with my then husband. And uh, we divided our, and conquered our practices because his was real estate and bankruptcy and mine was employment and family and so it was really a, a, a seamless split and uh, I took mine and have been running with it ever since. Now I know you, you were doing family law but now you're doing more labor law is that what it's called? Uh, labor and employment. Okay and what, what, what drew you to this type of law especially you've practiced in other law and not just you know went to school for it what drew you to this? Sure. So I will tell you that back in 90, right around 1995, I received a very frantic call from a young lady regarding a sexual harassment event that had happened to her at a restaurant she was working for uh, in town. And uh, ultimately, I, I was just intrigued by her allegations and researched the heck out of it and ultimately, you know, kind of took a complete interest in it and ultimately took the the road of going uh, employment law and learning anything and everything, taking advanced courses, CLE courses, uh, even getting a mentor, you know, to assist me to really know what I was doing. And since then, I've been doing it by, by myself pretty much ever since and took uh, cases both to federal court, state court, tried cases, settled cases, mediated cases. And, you know, whether it involves race, religion, national origin, gender, disability, pregnancy, non-compete agreements, executive contracts, it, anything you can think of under the sun. I represent employees and I also represent employers. So I've seen it from both sides. And um, that's that's kind of a little bit of the nutshell. But it started with that first case and just kind of spun spun from there. I was reading recently that the Supreme Court, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's the Senate, is going to take a look at um, non-competes. Yes. What, maybe you can enlighten our audience about that. Sure. So for a number of years, non-competes have been governed by statutes in each state. And for example, in Florida, we have a non-compete statute. 
in New York, there's a non-compete statute. And each of the different restrictions of what's reasonable in a non-compete to prevent somebody from competing against a company that they worked for or business that they've been affiliated with has been challenged. And a lot of times um, you get these opinions from, from courts where they don't want to enforce them because they feel as though they're taking away someone's right to work. And yet at the same time, because people have signed contracts that prevent them from doing so, there's a lot of enforcement actions that take place. And in California, by way of example, it's it's not non-competes are not legal. And so in recent years, there's been a movement and a lobbyist movement together with a lot of legal cases arguing that it prevents the right to work and that it's a constitutional issue or that it's a contractual based issue. And so it looks like the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case in its next term that will involve non-competes. If that happens, in my prediction, it will. I think that there is going to be some serious guardrails of uniform measures as opposed to these independent states kind of formulating their own law as to what's enforceable. And I think that you will find that it is, you know, in general, non-competes are just disfavored because of the connotation that they're putting golden handcuffs on people or restrictions on people who otherwise need to work um, and come to the table with a lot of knowledge, which is what creates the competition. Right. It's interesting. So in our industry, for years, when a stockbroker would jump from one firm to another, they'd immediately get an injunction to stop them. Of course. And then they figured out this is really silly. So now they have an agreement where they don't bother. You can Everyone jumps around and, you know, it just they gave up on it. Well, they did and they didn't. So what, by way of example, what did they do? The promissory notes have longer periods of time attached to them. Um, there were different payouts associated with how they got paid. And so it kept the brokerage industry in line, you know, kind of, as I've mentioned, the golden handcuffs. There's a lot of attachments that go to these non-competes. Sometimes it's severance agreements. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, compensation structures that, that, that are attached. Other times it's flat out, you know, you can't compete the minute we terminate you. And now what do you find? Somebody's soliciting or doing something of a, a nature that, that causes concern to the company because they think is their client base or, or business is being affected. So it's, it's what I call very fertile ground, and it has been for many years. Um, it's kept me very busy in court. Probably, I would say, more than 60-plus percent of my cases that have been heavily litigated separate from the discrimination has been non-compete because of that. And I think you're going to see a big change because it's just it's very difficult, very difficult from an enforcement perspective, very costly. And I think, you know, businesses are getting smarter, as are the courts getting smarter on, on wanting and not wanting to enforce them. Right. Well, you got to give people a chance to make a living, as you say. Right. And right. You can't force them to work somewhere if they're not happy. Right. And even with the argument of suggesting, oh, well, they can go work for some industry that's not competing. Well, when you've crafted your entire career to be a certain way. And now, just because you've left a company that you've signed this document with, you're told you can't do those things, and now you got to go sell some other kind of widget. Um, it's problematic. It's a lot easier said than done, for sure. Sure. You were telling me earlier about some cases where um, people do get, whether it's sexual harassment or other payouts, and some are taxable, some are not. Yeah. So, for example, anything with a physical impact, and I'm not... I, I preface this by saying I'm not an accountant and, and everybody kind of interprets the IRS code the way they choose. But if it's not a physical impact, it is generally considered a taxable consequence. So 
by way of example, in a sexual harassment case, if there was physical impact, you know, and, and someone gets a resolution, a settlement, and say a portion of it is wages and a portion of it is for that impact, that impact is not going to be taxable, but the wages will. So when we look at those type of cases, a lot of times in resolving those cases pre-suit or resolving those cases as it relates to, by way of example, a settlement right at the courthouse steps, however you characterize that is going to make the difference. And if you characterize certain things as wages or impact, obviously it's got to be truthful what's happened in order to characterize it properly. But I just say that because then a lot of times clients are like, well, I'm getting a, a decent amount of money. What do I do with that money? And if I'm taxed on that money, you know, what's my next steps with that money versus if it's a non-taxable consequence, you're still saying, well, I'm getting a lot of money. What am I doing with that money? Got it. And when it comes to labor law and when people do have an issue, what, what do you counsel them? So there are a couple of different things. Employment labor are two different things. So with labor, which involves mostly union related type of work, you know, the first step is to go to your union steward, you know, speak with them if, if you have a union and your employment is attached to some form of union relationship. If it's not, then it's going to be private, in which case it's going to be employment law anyway. It's just not labor. So if it's employment law, in which case you're going to go to usually you're going to go to an employment lawyer. Every employment lawyer works differently. You see a lot of billboards out there about employment. Um, not a fan. I think that, you know, these firms are taking the model from the page of a personal injury lawyer. And so I, I run the other way. That's just my personal opinion. I look for someone who is an expert, someone who's been doing it a long time, someone who's tried and true and who knows what they're doing understanding what areas that they've practiced in employment law and getting a very good consultation with that attorney. And in doing so, a lot of times you're going to pay a consultation fee because it's just like going to any professional or doctor. You know, you're going to go and you're going to pay an educated expert for their advice versus calling a 1-800 line and thinking that you're going to get some expert advice um, because it's usually screened by a paralegal or something like that who then forks over the case to the the attorney. But you want an expert opinion. I don't care whether it involves a contract, uh, you know, an executive agreement, you're exiting a company and they're giving you a severance package with a release that you need to consider, or you feel as though you've been wronged in some capacity uh, relating to discriminatory conduct or mistreatment, or you've blown the whistle on something. So that's that's what I would say. And, and you got to go to an attorney. And the first step is the intake and understanding whether or not you have a claim and then understanding how that attorney will handle the claim and what they intend to do procedurally to avail your rights. Now, I know you're not practicing family law now, but when you were, what would you say is the biggest mistake people make in family law? Let's first talk about divorce. Sure. So the biggest mistake that people make is a lot of times they come in and they are already behind the eight ball. And what do I mean by that? They've either already gotten served with papers, maybe they didn't see it coming, or they saw it coming and never did anything to prepare. Those who don't have, didn't do anything to prepare, but they knew it was coming, shame on them. It's kind of like uh, football, right? If you're an offense, you need to be prepared. If you're a defense, you need to be prepared. So as, as I look at it, getting an expert opinion from a family lawyer, uh, any more than I would pull my own teeth out or triage my own dentistry work 
um, I would, you know, go to an expert. And, and I think that a lot of folks are, are concerned, oh, a lawyer's going to do this or do that. It's important that you get an expert opinion from a family lawyer who understands and can triage your story, your situation, understanding your financials. To me, you know, what does family law generally boil down to with the exception of custody issues? 90% of these issues involve money. Why? Because it's dividing of assets, it's dividing of liabilities. And so from where I sit, you know, you've got to talk to somebody to understand how and get an accountant on board who can, assuming that there are enough assets at stake that will be able to help you work through what you're going to need, both whether it's alimony, child support, and understanding your assets and how that will play out in the outcome of what you ultimately obtain from the process. Right, it makes very very much sense to me. What would you say is your unique approach uh, with your clients that separates you from other attorneys in your field? It's a really great question. I am an attorney who doesn't make threats, I make promises. And so in my practice, I have always sat down with the client, spent as much time as I need to understand their case before I decide to take it. I run a very boutique practice. I don't take every case. Um, anybody who does is making a huge mistake. And so what separates me is I'm very boutique. I'm not volume oriented or volume driven. So, you know, I look at the case the same way I would if it was a family member, I look at the case and know that I'm gonna live with that client from beginning to end and work through that process. I'm not afraid to go to trial. I think a lot of attorneys uh, talk about trial but never been to trial. I think a lot of attorneys don't really understand that litigation, you need to take as much of an aggressive approach as these large defense firms do in defending the case. And so you need to be prepared to roll up your sleeves, not be afraid to do the work, not be afraid to write your tail off for federal court and not be afraid to make those arguments. And if you're not getting what you need out of the process to push that process as far as you can go within reasonable limits and ethical limits to ensure that you get the result you want. Okay, that's very good. Is there anything you want to share with the listeners that we haven't discussed? No, I think the only thing that I would say is, um, you know, Anyone coming to, whether it's you or me, you know, they're looking for expert advice. And if they're looking for expert advice, they should look no further. But at the same time, understand that, you know, we are not gods. <laughs> we don't and can't predict anything. We can give the best educated opinion. And that best educated opinion doesn't guarantee what a jury is going to do, doesn't guarantee what a judge is going to do, doesn't guarantee what the market's going to do. It's just that we know from our experience and that's what we work from and that's what I work from. Now, I do have a question because you said jury. Is a divorce ever in front of a jury? Is it always just a judge? No, it's always a judge. Divorce is not a jury trial type case. You're not entitled to a jury. The judge is the one who decides and that's what makes divorce a tough one as well because just from the, the politics of the game, the attorneys that play in, in that arena, um, you want to go to somebody who is routinely in front of those judges because they know them and judges either receive them well or don't receive them well. Right. So it's really important to do the homework on the attorneys just as much as it is important to do the homework on the judge that you get. Well, I can't help but remember that the scandal we had with the judges in Delray. There are many a scandal and it's not just in Delray. Um, they are, it is, uh, let's just say it's everywhere. Right. 
Okay, so and, and what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you if they need to retain you? The best way to connect to me is to reach out to my office um, at, at either the telephone number or my email. My email being uh, dralaw at dralawfirm.com. Uh, that goes straight to our front office and we can set up uh, a consult. You can go to our website at dralaw at dralawfirm.com. It even has a calendar program where you can schedule uh, consults and mediations and arbitrations. Um, and then, of course, call our, our uh, phone number at 561-361-8010. Great. Well, again, I want to thank you very much for joining us. And I look forward to having you on a future podcast. I look forward to it, too. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Control of Your Financial Life. For more information about today's topics, please visit or check the show notes for more important information and links. Share, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.